Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in His love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com. I can't believe I'm saying this. It is the last week of August. I don't know how you guys are doing. Uh, it was really wonderful to see a lot of you guys, most of you guys, uh, last week. Not last week. Yesterday um, at Senior Banquet, uh, we have had four members of our community be um, able to move past, by God's grace and His providence, move past uh, their high school years. Woo! High school is gone for them. Uh, for the rest of you, sorry. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I still look great. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyways, yeah, so we've had uh, four beloved brothers and sisters graduate and enter into our college community. Um, yeah, and with that end, we are now in the last week of August about to enter into fall, a crazy freaking fall where nearly everybody is staying home and uh, quarantine is not over and it's not looking like it's going to be over anytime soon because America is great and uh, we keep skyrocketing in terms of COVID numbers. I don't know why I'm talking so much about this right now. I think maybe things are pent up. But yes, it's the last week of August and we're so glad to have you here with our church. Through all seasons, through all situations, our God is faithful to our community and we are still one family. So it's really wonderful to see you guys here today. Some things change, uh, like our whole world upside down, but one thing doesn't change, and that's our sermon series on Acts. We are in the 17th, the 17th, the 17th chapter, about the 19th week of Acts, and we'll be continuing through our sermon series in Acts 17. We'll be reading from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. The author of this book, Luke, is a very, very smart man, and his Greek is difficult. So if you guys want to read this from the NIV or the NRSV, that's fine. I'll be reading from the ESV, though. Um, yeah. I'll just jump right into it. Oh. Uh, although we aren't standing together and although we don't get to worship corporately in person, please hold utmost reverence, reverence, reverence at this time for our God. Uh, Acts 17 verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Since being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? God, we come together to worship you. I am limited in so many different ways to be your messenger. Praise be to God that you use all people for your glory and for the furthering of your kingdom. Abba, we just ask God that you would speak directly into the hearts of your people about this very important passage, this very well-known passage. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be in the world, but not of the world. That you would help us to be able to fix our eyes on you. Abba, I am, I have not much to offer. I am weak and I am low and I need your mercy right now, God. So God, as I preach your word, this word that is so obviously and clearly yours, would you hide me behind your cross that only you are glorified? Would you guide me by your hand and lead me to your waters? 
and as you lead me, God, that your words would lead your congregation, your people, your beloved children to your pastures, to still waters, that we would all be trees planted by streams of water, even in this time of spiritual drought and famine. Hide me behind your cross, that only you are magnified and only you are glorified and only you speak to your people. Align me and this congregation and this area, God, to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. So this passage is very, 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 very well known. And this passage is what a lot of people use to explain evangelistic mission and how you ought to speak. And it's also it's also a passage that really brings into contention a lot the authority of Paul. So I'm excited and not excited to <laughs> speak from this passage today because I think it'll address a lot of things that we might need to fix and a lot of things that a lot of things that we might need to learn in terms of being in the world but not being of the world. I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, the state of Athens. So all y'all know Athens, Greece. There is many, 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 many a tale about Athens, Greece. Athens is a mecca in so many ways. One of the first democratic institutions that history has ever seen. An institution that is based in in representation, a nation state in and of itself, even when Greece was an empire. And Athens is very a very interesting city for Apostle Paul to be preaching at right now. In this context, when Apostle Paul gets to Athens, Athens is already 500 years past its prime, which would have been during Alexander the Great. There are 17,000 statues of different gods in Athens of venerated emperors that now have become gods in statue form, of Greek and Roman mythology, all throughout, slain all throughout the city. If anybody was heroic in any way, they would be, a statue would be erected in their name and in their form or likeness, and it would be kept that way. To the point where um, Athens was really dying and then Augustus Caesar comes in, saves it, rehabilitates it, rebuilds the city, and they erect a statue of Caesar and call him savior and emperor. So that's how many statues there are. There are a lot of different people that believe in a lot of different things in Athens. Athens is a place where religion was... Religion, the lines between religion and philosophy were blurred, and everyone was always in the pursuit of new thought. Now, of these thinkers, there are two 
that are mentioned that are particularly important. Those are the Epicureans and the Stoics. And even though I don't really like to do this, I'm going to give us a brief philosophy lesson because I think what the Epicureans and the Stoics believe is really important for us to be able to catch in ourselves as well. So Athens is, like I said, 500 years past its prime. There are 17,000 statues, temples even to unknown gods because they are so in the pursuit of figuring out something that's new and the lines between philosophy and religion are very blurred. What prevails most of all is philosophy. And of philosophy, two main camps were Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans, the Epics, or the Stoics, I'm just going to call them the Epics. That is not what you call them. You call them Epicureans. But I'm going to call them the, the, the Epics because Epicureans is too long. Um, so the Epics, right? The Epics believe that the cosmos is the result of the accident, of an accident, and that the gods were created also in this accident, that the gods are subject to the accident of cosmos, and they live happily in marginal relationship with the world. The Epicureans is, the thing about the Epicureans that are really interesting is that the main criterion of what makes life good for Epicureans is pleasure. With no competition, aka there's no room for jealousy or failure, and no intense personal commitment so as to avoid emotional emotional turmoil. So basically, Epicureans believe that pleasure and gratification is the main criteria of good life, that competition is unhealthy for good life, and that intense personal commitment is unhealthy for good life. They believe that the universe is an accident, and that gods came out of that accident. Now, the Stoics are a little bit different the Stoics believe that everything is material, that the world is consistent of material objects whose interactions are controlled by laws or fate, that gods rule over the material and that there is no spiritual. I'm going to say that one more time. Stoics believe that the material world is what gods govern and that these material worlds and everything that happens within material worlds, they are dictated and controlled by valid laws. God rules in the material world and everything in the world is working towards good as a part of fate, fate, even disasters and famine. And accepting evil, uh, accepting this is key. So I don't believe that there's any evil in the world, that even difficult things that like suffering and um, unfairness is a is working towards good as a part of life. And Stoics believe that the main criterion for good life is virtue. Not the best thing that, like, the, not the main thing that makes you feel the best, but the most right decision. So Stoics believe that the most right or wrong thing is important, and that happiness found without passion, achieved in accepting matters out of control. Um, as being a part of nature is the best way to find happiness. So you have to not have passion and you have to be able to accept every good and bad thing that comes in your life as being a part of nature makes you self-sufficient in your happiness. Epicureans and Stoics believe in this philosophy almost as a quasi-religion. Because this philosophy trans transcends a school of thought to almost be an explanation for how the world came to be and dictating the laws of nature 
and the laws of spirit. So one really interesting thing, the first really interesting thing that we see here is that Paul, as a religious evangelist, comes not in contact just with priests of idol temples, but he comes against philosophers. And that these are the main schools of thought. For those of you guys who might not be in college yet, you, you might be like, oh my god, what the hell is happening right now? But for those of us who have been in college, usually most of you guys go attend universities or some liberal arts college and at some point have to take a philosophy class. I am sorry if it reminds you of those dreaded lectures, but these two schools of thought are the prevailing ways to think. So the epics believe that everything is an accident, TLDR, and that pleasure is the main way to live, that competition and personal relational commitment is wrong. And then Stoics believe that everything is material and subject to fate. Gods are in complete control of the material world. And the only way to find happiness is to accept things as they are and do the right thing. Now, when Saul Paul, when Apostle Paul enters into Athens, it says in scripture that he was provoked. What it means is that he was it could mean, it's not necessarily that he was being drawn to anger, but it's it's upset. Um, and it's not necessarily a negative kind of upset or disturbance. The word actually is like stimulated. So it's clear that Paul was both deeply troubled by the situation of intense, intense polytheism and idolatry, but he was also very excited and almost moved to share the gospel and to convert people to Christ. Um, and he was stimulated to talk to them. The main way he talked to them is that he debated with them. When you guys hear the word debate, what do you think of? You might think of a clash of what people believe to be right or wrong. And maybe an argument that leads people to not have good vibes, right? But philosophically and logically, an argument or debate is um, a discussion or a dialogue between two different schools of thinking or ideas or points. And so Paul is engaging in dialogue with the other voices and the other schools of thinking within Athens. In response to this, in particular, the philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics say about Paul, who is this scavenger? Now, obviously it, the word scavenger isn't pretty, so you can already tell off the bat that it's negative, but it's actually really, um, it's not inflammatory, but it is really like, I don't know, pompous? It's seeing Paul as inherently inferior. Um, and another way to explain this word is an ignoramus or a babber, someone who just picks up and retains scraps of knowledge. So they're saying like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, he hasn't studied anything, he's just picked up little things that he said and he's just like regurgitating what he's heard um, and he's ignorant. That's what they're saying about him. So that's kind of like, the way that Athens is operating based on schools of thinking, rampant polytheism, and when Paul comes in and starts debating with them on an intellectual level, just as much as it is spiritual, they call him an ignorant, basically. And that's very telling. I don't think that, I think out of all the contexts that I've preached about, um, 
This might be maybe my top five closest to what we are today. If you can think about philosophy, the philosophy of this world right now, if you think about all the values that you're fed on social media, a lot of people, I mean like one really good example that's really, really outdated is like YOLO. Um, this idea that you only live once, this idea that if you're only, if you've only got one life in this world, you gotta make it count. And although it's not a trending hashtag anymore, a lot of people and a lot of millennials and post-millennials, Gen Z, still live on this ideal. We've got 16 second videos of people talking in different ways, of people addressing, um, other people in certain ways that are inflammatory, derogatory, or inferior. Um, Cancel culture is rampant and it's easy for any of us to be like, oh, you don't agree with me, unfollowing, or you don't agree with me, unfriending, as though that actually makes the idea in and of itself disappear. But all of these things, you might see like, oh, Jane, how does that have to do with philosophy? See, all of these things are charged by ways of life that are ingrained into our societal consciousness. For example, cancel culture ingrains into your mind the fact that you can't get along with anybody unless you are preaching to the choir. Um, and that people who don't agree with you aren't worth your time or energy or existence, <laughs> um, knowledge of existence. Um, and there's this understanding of I don't want to call it hedonism, but it's really pleasure-seeking. Even Thomas Jefferson says in the Constitution, uh, every American has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's supposed to be property. It's supposed to be ju- it's supposed to be the locking values of life, liberty, and, po- and property. But even in the Declaration of Independence, the very document that our country is literally built on, the word property is switched to pr- the pursuit of happiness. And this pleasure-seeking power-mongering, very, very polarized society that we live in now, it's not just a matter of culture, it's a matter of way of life, and it's a matter of thinking of philosophy. And a lot of us um, might buy into a lot of these things. Um, There are just so many things, like once you guys take a philosophy class, you'll really notice for yourselves, there's so many things that we believe in that we've just been taught, even through the English language, or through ELA, or or history, or social studies, certain values that we've picked up that might not be informed by scripture at all. Even the ways that we view government, and politics, and justice, might be so, even if it's the right thing, like even if we want equality and equity for every single human being, the ways and the means that we have gotten to believing in that thing might not have anything to do with God. Because we have been fed so many different things that our values and what we believe is right and wrong might be heavily informed, not by scripture, but by the world. Even the way you approach scripture, being extremely thought-based. Well, is this song politically or theologically correct or sound? Oh, is that, is that theology? Like, oh, you don't agree with my theology, which means that your theology must be wrong. When that go, like that kind of theological conversation goes against God completely. 
Like even the way that we approach the Bible and the way that we overlord our interpretation of the Bible over the lifestyles that are depicted in the Bible is very telling of the ways that we basically take the content of the gospel and we attach worldly values to it. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's thought-driven. Maybe it's superiority or inferiority. Maybe it's post-colonialism. Maybe it's power structures. Whatever it may be, there are so many times when we attach worldly value systems to the Bible. And if not that, we can often find ourselves compartmentalizing God and the rest of our lives. Like, I believe in God, but when it comes to success, I'm going to follow the way that... I'm so sorry, this is just the first field that came to my mind, but especially like for fields like business where it's very um, like geared towards success and geared towards getting a leg over everybody else, a very competitive structure, um, you might be like, okay, I believe in God and then come into this field of business without even thinking about Christianity. Like the ways that you might be pursuing success in your field might not have anything to do with Christianity at all, even if you're devout. Even the ways that we might pursue anything, honestly, like, what was I doing? Law, uh, education, like health, biology, any, any of these things, honestly. Science, the arts, thought, um, we might be pursuing the rest of our lives based on societal emotions that have been informed, that we've been informed by rather than by scripture. Now that puts all of us in a confusing situation where we're like, okay, then what else are we supposed to do, Pastor Jane? Um, I'm not saying that I have all the answers for that, like right now, because I have to preach the rest of the sermon. Uh, but I want us to be aware of the ways, at least it starts with awareness, being aware of the ways that we might compartmentalize the gospel or even attach societal notions of what success and failure and right and wrong is and what is just and what is correct onto scripture without actually letting scripture inform the rest. When we're Christians, right? And so this understanding of the way that Athens works is very important for us to apply into our lives. Because in this world today, it's possible for somebody to be Christian and Epicurean at the same time. And how dangerous is that? That's a half truth. But Jingdo, like, I get what you're saying, and I hear you, but a lot of the things that we live by, a lot of these values, they're not bad. Like, equality and equity for all people, that's better than most people, most Christians. Um, success, being able to put food on the table, like, I have to do that. I have to adhere to that. I live in this world right now. And yes, certain things are inherently good, but while they seem to be based off of good virtue, they are often not related to God and therefore are not centered on the right thing. Like if someone comes to a semi-correct sounding solution, but the process is completely wrong. For example, um, now I don't know, I don't know what kind of chemistry and math classes you guys have been in um, in your in your educational in your educational career. But for me, when it came to chemistry, um, when it came to chemistry and math, particularly in my later years of high school, my early years of college, I was given a lot of tests where you had to write down your process of getting to your answer. Um, I didn't understand why, 
Like, I just, it's, honestly, it's neater if you just write it on a separate sheet of paper, like, if you have scrap paper, and then just write the answers in, right? Uh, so I didn't really understand the point of it all too much until one moment where I was, I got, and I remember I got a B. I got like an 83, even though I had gotten every question right, because the way that I had solved my answers were not right, if that makes sense. Like, I wasn't using the proper steps to come to the right conclusion. And so, yeah, for maybe these elementary rudimentary problems, I was able to come to with the right answers. But there was no saying that in complex situations, especially when it comes to chemistry, and especially when it comes to, like, arithmetic, like, just hardcore arithmetic um, and differentials, um, it's just... I might be able to get to the right answer sometimes, but if I'm not using the right process, then ultimately it's not the right answer. It's that I stumbled upon something that's good. In the same way, just because you believe in virtues that are good, and just because you might be living your life based on things that sound right, even in Christian circles, for example, dialogue, when it really comes down to fighting about theology, it's not, which isn't, like, why would God want you to fight about what you think God is? I don't know, man. I don't know. You know? Um, like, when you think about these things, in the same way, you could have the wrong process and come to the right conclusion. See, if God was adherent to the rest of this world, he would say, oh, right answer, check. But God is not the God that cares about our answer. He's the God that cares about our process. And so if our process isn't correct, God is going to come for your life. Not because he's judging you. Because God has come not to judge the world, but to save it. That's a direct quote from Christ. Right? In like John 17 and John 3, 17, it's just like, he says it over and over and over again in the book of John. I did not come into this world to condemn the world, but to save it. But oftentimes, God is not trying to save us from the wrong answers. He's trying to save us from the wrong process. And so it's really important for us to understand how Athenian our society is because we are based off of like literally our world, the Western world, and even Western Christianity, all the way from liberal to conservative to even reformed Christianity. It's all like Luther, Calvinism, all of these things, they're based on Westernism. So it comes post-Athens. It comes post-Aristotle, post-Plato philosophy. Like there's so many elements to Christianity even that are steeped in these kinds of values. So you have to be able to have the sense to be able to look back and do some critical thinking on the ways that you have, not just the things that you have thought, but the ways that you have thought through the things that you think. Um, and so, oh, another thing you guys might be thinking is like, but Jane, I don't feel like I idolize these things. You know, I, I, I get you and I hear what you're saying, but I don't think that I idolize these things. Um, yes, I think that it's true that you might not idolize these things, um, but... I, okay, let me, let me give you an example of my own life. So, um, I was a, like... Of, of my majors, like one of my majors was philosophy, politics, and law. And uh, I focused less on the politics and I basically used all my political science classes to do law, law classes. So the two things that I really focused on because I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to be a full diplomat. I'm clearly not diplomatic. If you know anything about me, you know that I'm not diplomatic. So, um, 
uh, yeah, so I focused in a lot on law and philosophy, um, and I was attempting to live my life to do something called justice ministry. Now, justice ministry is this type of nuanced ministry that focuses in on getting justice for all of God's people in, in faithfulness to who God is. And so uh, I prided myself on being somebody that felt called to justice ministry and found it my made it my goal to be a lawyer that I can that can offer service to God's people for the rest of her life to argue not just for the rights and the equal treatment of all persons but for um the gospel and make a solid case philosophically for Christ because just saying Jesus is alive often that doesn't explain all the all the um nuanced, complex counterexamples or counterarguments that people might have. Now, I remember this so clearly. Uh, I got recruited for TFA. Obviously, a lot of you guys know that. And then I was basically hired by... I got... I got hired for TFA, not necessarily for the, the school. I hadn't gotten any of my placements yet, but I was technically hired in mid-November um, of my fall semester of senior year. And um, I remember very clearly, I was like very nervous to open up my email. And I opened up my email and said, oh my God, like, not oh my God, it says, congratulations, Shane, you have been accepted into Future America, which is in partnership with AmeriCorps, yada, 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 all the things that I have to do post, like what I have to apply for, what, how I'm gonna be placed and whatnot. Um, AmeriCorps is like a justice-related organization that is subsidized by the government to like send people, college students for two years for grant work, like basically across the country. And so Teach for America sends people out as teachers. Um, and I remember I was like so excited to get that email. I was like, yes, finally in the right direction of justice. And then I opened my QP. And I remember reading, I'll never forget this. I remember reading, uh, it was on utmost. I think, I honestly think it was November 26th or October 26th. Like some, it's so hard to get that, even that day out of my mind because it was the daily QT of that day and I just opened it. Um, and I remember like Oswald Chambers' words, I'm paraphrasing it, but don't let the circumstances of the people that you serve blind you from what they really need. And I was really struck by that for a long, long time. Like, I was really struck. I was really marked by that moment because I was like, what? Like, God cares about what everybody's going through, right? He he, he heals the brokenhearted and he mind, binds up their wounds. That's Psalm 113. Like, there's no... The God that I know is a God that cares about loving justice, doing mercy, walking humbly with your God. That's one of the most well-known passages in scripture. Like, what is he talking about? And I remember that night I was wrestling with the Lord and God was leading me to a place where he was helping me to see that what the people that I wanted to serve, what they needed, yes, they needed equality. Yes, they needed equity, but what they really needed wasn't to be treated right, it was Christ. Like in the middle of prayer, God was like, what do you think these people really need? And I was like, God, I mean, they need better homes. They need equal treatment. They need to be such, they need to stop being treated like second-hand citizens. They're image bearers. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. And God's like, yes, but what they really need is me. 
I thought that was like a very big correction in that moment. I remember I was like, oh, like God is correcting me so that I can be like a very seasoned and sharp justice ministry person. Um, and then I think exactly, almost exactly a year after I got hired for TFA, I was working at my Blossom um, in a completely different field. And so, Yes, you might not. Why, why do I share this with you? Um, you might not feel like you idolize these things, but if you live based on these things and you even let things like your calling, things like your vocation, things like the way you treat other people be informed by this more than by God. And if you attach scripture, because a lot of the times people, not every person does this. I think topical sermons are really great um, and seminars are really great. But a lot of times people take topics and then find the right scripture to attach to it. You know, like when you when you look through a book, like you want to say something about this book that you've basically read via Cliff Notes in English class, and you're trying to say one thing about it, so you just basically skim through the book until you find just the right quotes, um, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with the book. Uh, it's like it's kind of like that where people take God and they take or they take what they want out of world, out of the world, what you want out of your um, direction, what you want and what you live by uh, about people like, oh, I shouldn't trust people because of X, Y, Z. Oh, like family is important to me because of X, Y, Z. Oh, my vocation is important to me because of X, Y, Z. And you kind of have these values ingrained already and then you attach scripture to them like this. And that's something that I was doing because... Ultimately, the reason why I must have thought that justice was good is because justice was good. But then I was using scripture to be a point of justification rather than really letting the gospel inform and really letting situations in the New Testament inform my understanding of what people actually need and what I actually need to do as his servant. And so... What is your basis of happiness and fairness? Oftentimes, when it comes to happiness and fairness, people compartmentalize this from faith. And what that leads to is half-hearted Christianity. So what we've got, even in this cultural, political Christianity that we live in today, what we've got is half-hearted Christianity across the board. Because if we really let the gospel inform every other aspect of our lives, the church wouldn't be this divided based on theology and politics, first and foremost. And the world wouldn't be so disgusted with what we had to say. Maybe they'd be shocked. Maybe they would still not like it. But the hypocrisy of the church would not be a reason to not believe in Christ. Now that's that's like a long understanding of Athens. Athens. But I, I want us to really be able to take that to heart as we read Paul's argument. Because if you don't take that framework of what Athens is and what we are as a Western society and civilization that is post-Athens, you can't fully appreciate Paul's points for what they are. So Paul goes into his argument and his like sermon or his debate or his soliloquy, whatever you want to call it, because it's clearly like not just sharing the gospel. People bring him to the Areopagus, which is the main place where everybody makes their points, um, and they invite him there and they say, okay, what do you have to say? And Paul's speech 
It's very interesting. He doesn't speak to Athens like he's spoken to every other group. He doesn't overtly just talk about the gospel and just shove scripture down people's throats, but he actually tailors everything that he says based on what they, what frameworks they live by. He first goes in, you know, people of Athens, you know, and he talks about this unknown God that they believe in, that they're further in their pursuit of something new. And he says, well, this is a God that you do not know. And he begins to like tailor this really well-crafted argument for Christ. Um, but I want to like separate that, that little bit that he does between two things. Paul does two things in this soliloquy debate thing. The first thing he does is he shows where there's common ground between Christianity and philosophy. And then he does a critique of contemporary popular thought and philosophy on the basis of scripture. What I mean by that is he basically uses the commonalities and then the commonalities that they that they might have the things that might be synonymous between Christianity and philosophy, and uses that as a stepping point to explain exactly how Christianity trumps those thoughts. Okay? Um, but one, one, two key things to take from this initially is why does Paul speak in common ground, right? You might think like, oh... Isn't this really secular of Paul? Like, there's no, there's a, there's not even a mention of the name of Jesus. Like, that's like one, like, would, I don't want to attack the Reformed Church because I think the UMC is just as flawed. But would the, okay, I'll say the evangelical, would the evangelical church receive this speech as legitimate evangelism? Because there's no mention of Jesus. Like if Paul were modern day, and if he were to say this in modern day, the evangelical church would shoot him down. Be like, this is heretical because you're not mentioning Jesus, right? Um, and it might seem as like really secular, but Paul understands the very basic notion that without common ground, you cannot get people to see your perspective. One of the main things that's wrong about our society right now is that everybody who's arguing for one side versus the other in any different playing field, in any different field, they are all highlighting differences to denote superiority rather than finding common ground to bring compromise and to bring negotiation. And so like that's like one of the most basic understandings of getting people on your team is to show where you have in common. Right? One really good example of that is food. Like, there are so many different cuisines and so many different foods that can be made, but a lot of the critical tenets might be more similar than people think. In that way, it's really important to be able to find common ground. And the second thing is that Paul critiques contemporary popular thought and philosophy based on scripture. One interesting thing about this is that he critiques them in ways that they can understand. He doesn't just say, oh, like, he doesn't just spit Christianese at them in words and concepts that they've never heard before and say, that's why Christianity's right. Oh, because God comes into your heart and like, yeah, you gotta be intentional and that's why Christianity is right. He, he speaks to them in their language. What, two things to note aside from these things is that Paul uses a different word for God. He speaks in the language that they understand, but Paul doesn't budge when it comes to actual gospel. He allows himself to 
work on their framework, but then speaks on behalf of the gospel. And one key way that he does that is the word for God. So they talk about God, like when they say foreign deity, the word deity is daimonion. And that's used to explain lesser gods. It's just like a spiritual being. But Paul uses the word theos. And the word theos is an inherent, intrinsic, personal God. And it's one. Hathias is one. Daimonion is like plural. So that's one critical way that Paul doesn't budge. Another thing is he gives a call to repent. And like using this common ground, using the speaking on their framework, he actually explains that... um, He actually uses that to give them a call to repent and then explain something that is really shocking to them. Some people receive it and some people don't receive it. And why Paul speaks in the way that he does comes to life in the in the sheer count controversial controversial thing that he mentions before he mentions Jesus without mentioning his name. And that is judgment and the afterlife. See, people in Athens didn't believe in the afterlife. They thought that death was eternal sleep. And they didn't believe in the spiritual realm. But what Paul was saying is he was using commonality, speaking on their framework, nodding to their philosophy to explain that contrary to what you're thinking, there is an afterlife. God is going to come to judge the living and the dead. And he's shown that through the resurrection of a man. So Paul sets all of that up to explain a concept that they would have a really hard time believing. And in that we see both the ingenious nature of the way Paul speaks, but also Paul's intentional love for where they come from, meeting them where they're at to explain something that they might not be able to wrap their heads around. You have to understand that Paul can be shot down for that. His introduction to judgment and Christ in an afterlife completely goes against what they have been learning and hearing for a long, long time. And so Paul needed to do this in order for them to be able to at least process and chew on what Paul was saying. For example, when you speak to the French, when you go to France, will you speak in English? I mean, French was, I'm French. France was the previous international capital of international politics before the UN took over and then America took over everything and then it became nonsensical. Um, France and Germany. So like, yeah, like most French people should know English, right? It's like a hub of culture. French people should know English. They speak in their like European way, but they still know English. So when you go to France, will you use English? Yes, but just because they might know some English doesn't actually mean that they will understand or accept you completely into their culture. Because your refusal to learn French, Americans are like this, Americans go to other countries, and I've heard this critique over and over and over and over again. Americans like to go and travel into other places in the country, and they speak American American English to everybody. Without any kind of respect or regard for the culture that they're visiting, they're like, hey, how much does this cost? Bathroom, bathroom, bathroom. Where is the bathroom? My home, like they speak to people, natives, like they, like they're the ones that are being dumb. 
but it's their freaking country. And Americans are, <laughs> you might, you guys might not have known that, but Americans are constantly sh- like shot down for this. Like and considered rude and disrespectful. It's one of the main reasons why. Um, just because they, they might know some English doesn't mean that they will accept what you're saying completely or that it's respectful in general. Paul is engaging in a most basic level of respect to be able to introduce something that they might have a really hard time swallowing. Some theologians call this pre-evangelism, and it's very, very wise of Paul. But it might be inconsistent with the Christianity that we live in today. This unapologetic, we must live everything based off of value, yada, 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 yada. Um, for example, one of that, one of the, one of, one person that might be doing that a lot today might be this really, really God-loving, smiley man with like blonde curls named Sean Phoebe. Um, he's one person that I think of when it comes to this, like this, God, Jesus loves you. And he's like, so he's a very big worship leader in Bethel. And he's been doing these like worship sessions across the country in the middle of COVID, blatantly disregarding COVID regulations, um, hundreds and thousands, not, not hundreds and thousands, I guess total, but at least a couple thousand people joining in a park with barely any COVID regulations and just worshiping together, jumping up and down, um, and he's been like, yeah, there's a revival going across the country right now. Um, yeah, sure. But without a basic level of respect, who's supposed to be able to hear you? Like, using just Christian means to illustrate a point. Yeah, maybe the, like, half of the country will understand what you're saying because they are white Christians. But that doesn't actually change the fact that that might not be something that can further the kingdom at all. Like, there needs to be a level of love, an intentional love that might go past what you are expecting. Um, and so Paul, in his way of communicating the gospel and introducing something that's completely different while speaking their language is a form of respect and love and wisdom. Because then they can actually take it. A lot of people are using Sean Few to say that Christians are dumb, that Christians don't care about COVID, that Christians are killing people by putting other people in danger. Is that really the legacy that we want to leave? Is that really what we want to be known for as a Christian? A lot of these things are thought-related, but I think... This passage, and I know I'm all about being spirit-filled. You guys know that. I'm all about being spirit-filled. I'm all about an altar call. I'm all about bringing people to Jesus Christ. But I think you have to be able to critically think through what you're communicating and what you're believing in and how you're believing in it and how you're living in order to, like, that is a very critical part of the Christian walk. So how can we apply this into our lives? Don't, the first thing, don't buy into the values of this world just because you've lived that way. Jane, this is all I know. I get it. That's cool. But you've only been living for 20 some years. Like, point blank, like, what do we know? You know what I mean? Test it against scripture. Scripture has been around a hundred times longer than you have. It's enduring for a reason. Logically, it is lasted longer than you. So for you to take 
your modern day values and to lord that over and let that inform scripture rather than letting scripture inform your life is actually even bitter folly than being a Jesus freak or a blind Christian. Now that is its own problem like we've seen in the second point, but it doesn't make you any better. Um, that also means testing governmental notions about scripture. I speak this way about Sean Feud, and I and I speak this way about the concerns of the way that Christians are portraying themselves in COVID, but I also had to take a moment to really, like, Sean Feud isn't the only, uh, there's this, like, really big reformed guy that I don't agree with at all, um, because he's very misogynistic, but he's a man that is loved by God. His name is John MacArthur. Um, <laughs> John MacArthur, like, sued California, um, and successfully won that case, that court case, that civil case, and so the church is open. Um, and even like praise organizations that we love, they, like I, I personally love Maverick singing music, uh, but they are recently like meeting in like large boards with basically no masks because it's in the state of Georgia. Um, and it's alarming. Um, but even when I was watching all of this, I had to stop and examine my own heart. Like, am I being averse to these crowds because of God? Like, what is my basis for judging these people for opening up their churches so early? Um, is it because of the fact that I'm constantly exposed to democratic news? Or is it godly? And I had to come to the conclusion, like, I had to, like, really, like, disengage from the notions that I've been living with to, to just the basic conclusion that it wasn't loving. Uh, not because of democratic law, or not because of COVID regulations, not because of anything like that, um, but because it's not loving for the church to jeopardize so many lives. Um, and in these ways, we have to be critically suspicious of our own ways of thinking in order to be able to really discern what parts of ourselves is being faithful to God and what parts of ourselves we're just doing because for the sake of doing. Um, another thing is, is that you got to know your audience. How are you communicating the gospel? Do you even care about the ears of people that are hearing? On the other hand, are you completely bought into worldly structure? Are you attaching scripture to your will? I'm not saying, and a lot of you guys, I feel on my spirit that a lot of you guys might be really resistant to this message. Um, and I'm not trying to say that you need to change your whole life upside down. But what I am trying to say is that it's worth thinking about. You really want to be consistent with what you've constantly believed in over God? Like, nobody wants that. That's scary. So, I just think it's really important for all of us to really critically think through the things that we are following. And last but not least, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Christian preaching will not be taken seriously if the preacher merely reformulates the beliefs of the general public or of a particular audience. Uh, I remember, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shooting at Ivy, um, in varsity by any means, but when I, when I was, when I was in Bing, um, one of the very, one of the most 
difficult things to swallow about InterVarsity was that it was so geared towards non-believers um, that the gospel was being packaged and presented in a way that secular people can receive readily. And so in that in that process, a lot of new Christians that came out of at least the chapter in my university, um, they didn't actually know the gospel and they often fell away. Um, and that was really hard to watch. Um, don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't water it down. It's possible to be in the world but not be of the world. And it's possible to live your life and live it well without watering down the gospel for yourself. Without overvaluing grace and undervaluing judgment. Without overvaluing mercy and undervaluing the dangers of success and prosperity. Without overvaluing believing in Jesus Christ and undervaluing the need to lift up your finances to God. It's possible um, for us as Americans, for us who are living in Andover and in Massachusetts, to not value the things that we have grown up with more than God and not water the gospel down and still live a good life. Because God is with us. I'm not trying to preach a prosperity gospel here, but I'm saying that letting God inform your life from everything to your bank account, to your future, to your relationships, is possible, it's doable, and it's wise. It's what? Um, if there was general agreement only between Christians and social justice warriors, there would be no need for Christian preaching. And God is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So what does that mean for your lives right now? In what ways have you watered down the gospel for maybe your own self? And have bought into societal notions and philosophies and let those things inform your faith more than God. Why do you believe in what you believe in? Why are you pursuing what you are pursuing? How much are you letting God into your life right now? Are you struggling with your finances? How much are you letting God into that process? Are you struggling with your calling? How much are you letting God into that process? Or are you letting your own understanding and your own values inform those things more than God? On the other hand, Christians, we can't just speak in Christian needs um, and expect people who are not in the church to understand it and say, like, why don't you get it? One of the biggest challenges I had was I went to preach for Living Water. There was about 200 non-Christians in the room. And I was preaching on John 3.16, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I had to go and edit my sermon like five times just to rid myself of all the words that were not loving because nobody was going to understand them. Like, what the heck is intentionality? Like, what is that? What is sanctification? Can you guys answer, give me a coherent one-sentence definition of sanctification? Like, what is substitutionary atonement? Like, what is koinonia and fellowship? Like, you can't just use those words in the world and expect people to change and be transformed. It's not lovely and loving 
At the same time, we need to not water it down. Standing in that tension is going to be really important as we move forward. Christianity is going to change a lot. But we have to learn to do this. We have to learn to let the gospel inform our lives. And even let the gospel inform the ways that we dialogue with people that don't believe in it. There are going to be non-believers in our own church. How are you going to approach them and have a conversation with them? And yes, we did not hear about coming to Jesus today. We didn't hear about being comforted by the gospel today. We did not hear about how the gospel heals all wounds today. Those things are still applicable in your life right now. There are so many places that our ministry needs to heal. And for those of you guys who are in a place where you are struggling, I apologize that I didn't get to talk about that enough. Um, God is with you in your process as you heal. At the same time, when we live a life that is in line with the gospel, the gospel doesn't just change other people, it changes, it changes us. It changes us and it heals us and it makes us emotionally, spiritually, and mentally healthy when we allow God to inform us instead of the world. It applies just as much to your finances as it does to your feelings of worthlessness and self-esteem. So with that, would you take a minute with me to pray? What are some of the ways that you have let God in, uh, let the world inform the ways that you live more than God? What are some of the ways that you have allowed yourself to buy into certain things in this world and have attached scripture to it instead of letting God inform the way that you live, the way that you manage your money, the way that you manage your relationships. What does the judgment of God and the mercy of God and the gospel of the res- of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for your life right now? some of the ways that you might be maybe you guys have one person or two people in your life right now that aren't Christian that you might have a hard time communicating with how might you be able to reframe the ways that you speak with them and maybe that's what you need in your own life as well How might you explain the gospel without any single word that just applies to only Christianity? In plain speak, if everything was stripped away, what would your faith be? Luckily, we believe in a God that doesn't overlord our words and our conventions over us, but a God that calls us in loving kindness come before the throne, just as we are in our weaknesses, and he receives us for who we are. So would you just open up your heart with me? Maybe lay down some of the things that you've been pursuing before God, not to give them up completely, but to lay them down before God and let God speak into the parts of your life that you might not have let him speak into before. Everything from your understanding of justice to your own lives and your own futures.
from wherever you are listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com.